Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Our program today features a rare public conversation between an oil industry executive and a leading environmentalist. We'll talk about fueling the U.S. economy in the age of climate disruption. Most Americans recognize the connection between fossil fuels and severe weather, but there's disagreement about how to fix the problem and who will pay the cost. Even fervent advocates for renewable power acknowledge fossil fuels will be a mainstay of the global economy for decades. Over the next hour, we will discuss building a cleaner and more prosperous economy with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We'll also talk about fracking, California's climate plan, and a lot more. We're pleased to have with us Fred Krupp, president of the Environmental Defense Fund, one of the country's largest environmental organizations. We're also pleased to be joined by Rhonda Zygaki, executive vice president at Chevron for policy and planning. I should note that Chevron is a financial supporter of Climate One and the Commonwealth Club. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you both for coming. Thank you. Uh, Rhonda Saigaki, let's begin with you. Look at the big picture for the economy and energy. Uh, domestic supply of fuel is up recently. There's more drilling. Uh, demand has been soft, partly because of the economy, partly because Americans are buying fewer cars and driving shorter distances. So how do you see the overall picture of energy and the economy right now? Well, thanks, Greg. First of all, it's great to be here. Look forward to my conversation with Fred. And I know from past conversations, we will agree that there are a few topics more important than the future of energy. So look forward to that. And with respect to energy and the economy, uh, basically the link between them is undeniable. Let's think back 150 years. The greatest progress in living standards in recorded history were made possible because we had abundant, affordable energy. Affordable energy still underpins the way of life we have in America and is paramount to lifting billions out of poverty all around the world. And today in America, we are undergoing a fundamental shift in our energy landscape that has the potential to keep energy affordable, keep economic growth going, and address our greenhouse gas emissions for years to come. Some have referred to it as an energy renaissance. We've heard this. But interestingly, this renaissance is not driven by policy, regulation, incentives, subsidies, mandates. This renaissance is driven by innovation and this rock, shale. To us in the drilling industry, shale was more of a nuisance than it was a gem for many years. It's really tough to drill through, and it's not very productive. But America is blessed with this rock, and it wasn't until we combined two technologies, horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing, that we've been doing for 60 years in the industry, over a million wells, that we've been able to unleash the greatest energy story in decades. And the impact has been remarkable. In less than 10 years, we have reversed 20 years of domestic production decline in the country. We have created 1.7 million jobs already with the potential to create a million more before the decade is done. We see natural gas prices and crude oil imports at 15-year lows. We're seeing a resurgence in U.S. manufacturing. We are replacing coal with natural gas, and yes, even some are suggesting America energy independence is within sight. It's no wonder many countries around the world are looking to emulate our success. And it couldn't have come at a better time in our country because energy development has been a wonderful catalyst for economic growth of late. 
and the size of what we're talking about will bring multiple benefits that will ripple through our economy for years to come. This resource is so massive, it will attract trillions of investment. It will create millions of jobs outside of our industry into manufacturing, supply chains, services, everything from bakers to builders to fabricators. We are already seeing billions of dollars enter government revenues that's making their way into our schools, our health care, and R&D. And, of course, as the cleanest burning fossil fuel, natural gas, in combination with the progress we're making in renewables and efficiency, gives us greater potential than we've had before for more cost-effective ways to address greenhouse gas. Now, this renaissance, Greg, has not been without controversy. The environmental and safety aspects of shale development have really been in the spotlight, and I know we're going to cover that tonight, and we should. And we are partnering, actually, with EDF and others to understand this more and to recommend better practices. Um, I look forward to sharing what we do because we are confident we can develop this responsibly. We have to get this right. We are sitting on a 100 years of production with the power to add positive benefits to our workers, our environment, our economy, um, our trade relations, our national security, and our public service. It's not very often that a white swan comes along that can offer the combination of societal benefits at a scale that can be felt across a nation, if not the world, and energy development from shale is that type of opportunity. Clearly, our energy conversation has changed from one of gas imports to exports, peak oil and resource scarcity to energy abundance and opportunity. How we in the nation take advantage of this opportunity to benefit America is the choice before us. It will take a commitment to responsible development by companies like Chevron and others in our industry. It will take strong regulation and the enforcement of that regulation by the states. And it's going to take community trust and support. But we know if we work together, we can make this happen for the country. Thank you. Fred Krupp, your response is natural gas a blessing for America? It's certainly been a game changer. Is it also a blessing? Well, Greg, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here with you and with Rhonda, um, and it's a pleasure to be back in the state of California. Actually, it's my first visit to the state of California since you all have made history. Uh, the first of uh, this year, the California Cap-and-Trade Law, the Global Warming Act, went into effect. It's been a long time coming. The rule-making process took six years to develop, um, and yet, you know, now we have it, and uh, we have it... Um, in a way that's uh, quite remarkable. California leads the nation in energy innovation. California also leads the nation in environmental stewardship. And despite attempts in 2010 to uh, rip the heart out of this law, uh, uh, the proposition that was put on the ballot, 61% of Californians voted to keep AB 32 in place because Californians are smart and they understand the reason you have more clean tech innovation here than anywhere else in the country is because this law is on the books and it's creating incentives uh, for clean technologies, cleaner fuels. So congratulations. If you happen to be in this audience uh, or listening um, and you're a California, uh, you are doing the right thing. Um, on to shale gas. Um, you know, 
there's no question that shale gas represents um, a big economic opportunity for this country and has created a lot of jobs. Uh, there's also no question if you visit the uh, shale gas fields as I have, uh, that there have been more than a few instances where people who live around these operations have been harmed. Uh, I remember uh, going to Washington County, Pennsylvania, about 30 minutes south of Pittsburgh, and having a woman tell me and the others who were on Secretary Chu's panel um, about uh, the fact that she had had to abandon her family farm. Her... Um, Son was living in Friends to uh, continue to be able to go to school, and she was living out of her car because of the noxious fumes had made her and her kids sick. Um, there's so many operators that even if the best 40 are doing everything perfectly, there's still another couple of thousand um, because it's such a fragmented, um, such a fragmented operation. So. Uh, while the economic benefits are obvious, I guess, Greg, the environmental implications uh, of not doing this right in some cases are equally obvious if you spend the time to look. And the situation um, has led to controversy largely, um, and this is something in our report that we pointed out, because for too long, too many in industry said there aren't any chemicals escaping from the fractures. And while that is largely true, there have been thousands of cases of the chemicals going into groundwater because of surface spills and because the well casings uh, lacked integrity. In some cases, uh, companies haven't even tested whether the cement is um, well formed. So we need to do three things. We need to, one, get the rules right. Um, in order to protect uh, those who live nearby from um, not only water contamination, but uh, the air pollution, the community impacts. Two, um, we need to guard against the fugitive emissions of natural gas, mostly methane, um, which turns out to be an incredibly potent greenhouse gas, many times more potent than carbon dioxide, so even small amounts of methane leaking um, accelerate global warming tremendously, especially within the next 20 years when we most need help keeping the temperature rise down. And the third thing I would say um, is we need to make sure at this moment when the nation's utilities are deciding what to do with their power plants and EPA has put into place regulations that require them to be cleaned up or closed down. Um, and even more than the activism of the environmental community or more than these EPA rules, because natural gas has um, changed the market dynamics. So a lot of plants, aside from the rules and the activism, are being either temporarily shut off or permanently shut off. At this pivotal moment, we need to do all we can to accelerate the deployment of truly clean energy, uh, solar, renewables, uh, geothermal, and energy efficiency that this country has a lot more of. Um, and that Chevron actually has a business um, mm -hmm. advancing energy efficiency. If we do all that, 
get the rules right to protect the locals, uh, clamp down on fugitive emissions so we do harvest a climate benefit from switching from coal to natural gas, and prevent the lock-in of new natural gas plants by doing a lot of things to promote these other sources of clean energy, uh, then this could end up being not only a good thing for our country economically, but also environmentally. Rhonda Zygocki, your response to that, that there's been some risks, there's been some problems, mm-hmm. and that rules and capturing the, the fugitive methane can make this a, a, a cleaner source of energy. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more, but let me kind of <laughs> explain. Um, you know, there's been a number of issues that have been raised with respect to the development of shale gas. They range from the disclosure of chemicals, people wanting to understand what's in the frac fluid, which is 1% of what we put down hold during a fracturing job. They're concerned about groundwater contamination. They're concerned about emissions. They're concerned about road noise and road traffic and local impacts. And one by one on each of these issues, the industry, uh, in my view, has stepped up to address them and promote good standards with the states to ensure we can mitigate these risks. Let me just give you a few examples, groundwater being one. Um, the standard we use, we use eight layers of steel and casing uh, to drill our shale gas wells. For the vertical section of the well, we use air drilling, so not even any fluids are going down, and we case eight layers between the surface and the groundwater zone. Um, the fracture takes place almost more than a mile beneath the surface, and so as Fred said, we design our fractures so that they do not leave the shale itself. We measure the integrity of that well um, uh, under construction and throughout its life. We baseline water wells within 3,000 feet of our gas well and periodically test throughout the life as well to make sure we get a good baseline on where the um, water is and we can manage that throughout the life cycle. We, we disclose our chemicals on a site called Frac Focus. We have 1,700 wells already registered there. So I think one by one, whether it's chemicals, groundwater, well integrity, um, we are addressing those with standards. We are urging, the industry has come up with high standards. We are urging other operators to adopt them. We are working with the states to adopt them. We are working with the states to make sure they conduct peer reviews amongst the states so they can see what other states are doing. And on the issue of fugitive emissions uh, that EDF and Chevron and other companies and academic institutions are looking at, the issue there is we don't have a good grasp on the measurement. So we've all got together as a a concerned environmental community, a concerned industry, and a concerned academic community to try to assess this with good measurement, get our arms around it, and then you should look to the industry to say, now that we understand it, what is technically and economically feasible that we can put into a standard. So I think we've um, recognized the concern, addressed them kind of issue by issue, um, with, with facts, data, and good engineering practice, and I think urging the states to adopt. Now, on, on states adopting, uh, we're seeing they have been regulating hydraulic fracturing for many decades uh, across the country. Are they do, doing a good job at it? Well, I think what we can say is in the last 18 months, they're doing a much better job in terms of they are raising standards, um, tightening the regulation, um, you know, standards for well construction, standards for setbacks. They're looking at more uh, fines. They're uh, increasing enforcement. So we're seeing a continuous improvement amongst many of the states uh, to address these issues that, th- that are responding to their constituents and their public. So it's a continuous improvement. 
Uh, Fred Krupp, has Pennsylvania and some other states, have they been doing a good job policing the fracking that's been going on? No. Um, I think they are doing a better job on that, Rhonda, and I agree, but I don't think we can yet say, um, by and large, um, a good job. Let me let me give you an example, but, but first... Um, you know, I do want to thank Rhonda and Chevron. They are leading on the methane issue. They are part of this nine-company consortium with a lot of universities to go out in the field. Chevron has given us access, uh, given the University of Texas access to its sites. And so, um, you know, that is um, real cooperation. And, oh, and on that and other issues, Chevron and several of the companies really exhibit uh, the proactive um, stance that uh, Rhonda and Chevron should be applauded for because it's a good thing. Unfortunately, the industry is very fragmented. There's 40 companies uh, that make up 50% of U.S. onshore production. To get to 75%, it's 300 companies. To get to 100%, it's well over 1,000. Last I saw, over 2,000. So... Even if you have the top 40 companies doing everything exactly right, it doesn't give us universal protection, which is why, as Rhonda's pointed out, we need the states doing a good job. Now, the jury is out in my mind as to whether the states will get there. Three quick examples. One, in Colorado, um, EDF and Shell, um, initially a couple of other oil companies, agreed on the sort of baseline testing that should be done before drilling happens. Um, the trade association for the larger group, you know, uh, went to the Governor Hickenlooper's office and said, this is, you know, going to be too costly, too expensively, let's get rid of it. Unfortunately, the regulations that came out axed the idea of scientifically um, sound testing it at the baseline. In the disclosure issue, many states have... Um, now, within the last two years, quickly put disclosure rules in place. That is good. But too many companies, according to the data that's beginning to come out, are claiming trade secret for hundreds of chemicals when before the rule was put in place, they said we'll only claim it for a handful of chemicals. So the trade secret provisions are being abused, and they now need to, we need to go back and tighten them. Uh, we argued that they should be tightened before they were put in place. Um, you know, now I think there's the evidence that will allow us to finally prevail. And third, let's take a state like Ohio, where Governor Kasich, a Republican conservative former member of Com Congress, is now governor. He proposed disclosure not just to the chemicals going down the hole, but what we call spud to plug. So from the very beginning of drilling to the end of the operation of the well, there would be complete disclosures to what's going on, as opposed to just during the limited drilling phase. Um, the Trade Association for the oil companies in Ohio said this was too much, and the governor's own proposal, um, you know, didn't pass the Ohio State Legislature. So I think the cooperation we are getting from some companies is great. It's just that when you have so many companies and the trade associations tend to represent the lowest common denominator, you know, we're still in um, a period where, in my mind, Greg, the jury is out as to whether the regulations are going to be 
strong ones and whether we're going to see the compliance uh, and enforcement and stiff penalties that we need to protect folks. Fred Krupp is president of the Environmental Defense Fund. Our other guest today at Climate One is Rhonda Zygaki, executive vice president of Chevron. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Rhonda, do you acknowledge that, that you can't control all the risks of the industry? Chevron's just one company that there's risk for this. The little guys, the mom and pop players out there can create risk that affects the, the majors. You can do everything right, but there's still risk to, in the system that Fred's been talking about. Well, I think for a big company, I mean, we stand on our reputation and our track record, but we also stand with the industry as well. So it, it is in the best interest of us to continue to encourage um, all actors in the industry to adopt these standards, um, and that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, you, you know, nothing happens instantaneously and overnight, um, but we are in a mode of continuous improvement, and we see, you know, we see the states moving very quickly on this relative to, uh, you know, where the issue has been and the progress we're making. Let me just make one comment on trade secrets. We've been pushing our contractors to really to uh, kind of liberalize the information they're, they're uh, disclosing on trade secrets, and we have worked and we've made significant progress. We're not 100% there yet, but we've made significant progress over in a very short time to get them to disclose more and more all the time. I mean, for our part, we've reduced the number of um, chemicals uh, kind of classified as hazardous and, and needing material data safety sheets, for example, 77% just over the last few years from 37 to 7. And so bit by bit, we're working these issues, um, and it, it, it truly feels like we're in a continuous improvement mode, and that's a good thing because whether you're talking about hydraulic fracturing regulations or air emissions from tailpipes, the industry has, is constantly in a continuous improvement mode, and, and where we are in hydraulic fracturing is, is in that mode as well. One more question on fracking, and then we'll move on to some other topics. Uh, is it possible that, that there will be waterless fracking someday? Could there be a technological breakthrough? One recent announcement was Halliburton recently said that they have fracking fluid that doesn't have toxic chemicals in it, right. which would address a lot of these right. issues if it comes in at a cost that the industry is willing to pay. Well, I think we're always looking at new technology to address the issues that are of concern, and whether that's substituting a kind of hazardous chemicals for non-hazardous, whether that's looking at different ways to frack wells. Um, yes, the answer is we're always going to be investigating improvements in technology that can make our work safer, less risky, and more cost-effective. That's, that's kind of the norm in the industry. Just give you one example. Uh, we commit to 100% water recycling in our, in our fracture. So everything that flows back, we treat and we use it on the next well. Uh, in doing so, we've developed a tank system. That these are kind of a million-gallon tanks apiece. And just using the tank system and the recycling, we can shrink the footprint we're using even on the surface of the land from 20 acres to 10 acres. So, I mean, in very short order, we're addressing all of these issues, and technology is helping us get there. Fred Krupp, is technology enough, or is policy absolutely necessary? The industry, can they get their loan voluntarily and with technology, or does the government have to play a role here? Well, that's a great example Rhonda just gave. Um, you know, the sites I visited recently in Pennsylvania, um, the waste comes out of the, uh, uh, the well, uh, millions of gallons, and it's put in a pond. Uh, there's wires on top of the pond to try to keep the birds from landing in it. Uh, sometimes when it comes up, it's got radionuclides, if that's what's been down the well. So it's not only what's been added to the well and uh, the water intentionally, it's also what was in the geology that comes out. And, uh, you know, Rhonda's talked about a much better system where things are enclosed in tanks and not left in open pits. But 
I don't know that we're going to get there in a place like Pennsylvania or in a lot of other places until uh, it's required of companies to get there. So Chevron... Fe- federal action would be required? Federal policies where this has to happen? Um, we need action at the state level, at the local level, and at the federal level. Right now, most of the action, because of the politics of it, most of the progress that's being made is at the state level. I happen to believe that localities, uh, one of the great ways to make progress here is that localities um, should have the authority to regulate as they have other industrial activities. And even the authorities just say, you know, this is a place where we're not going to allow uh, this activity to go forward. I think making sure the localities have that level of control would be a great safeguard to make sure that the companies were truly wanted um, there by, by the locality. So I, I think there's a role for um, all three levels of government, and uh, there's certainly room for improvement by all three. Let's uh, move on and talk about science and some of the other risks. Uh, Rhonda, the Chevron website says that, uh, quotes some international scientists as saying that uh, warming is un- unequivocal and human activity is most likely the cause. So I just want to, it seems like the, co- the company accepts that. Uh, Fatih Birol, who is the chief economist of the International mm-hmm. Energy Agency, uh, said recently, told Reuters last year, that current projections for greenhouse gases are on track to uh, reach 11 degrees of Fahrenheit warming by mid-century. 11 degrees. We've had about one degree so far. So that's 10 more degrees in the next 40 years. What does that look like for, for Chevron, for, for, for the economy, 11 degrees of warming? This is the, the chief economist at the foremost uh, world's energy authority talking about that. Well, uh, Greg, I'm not a climate scientist, so I'm not even qualified to address what 11 degrees um, means for kind of Chevron on, on the economy. What I can tell you is that um, we share the concerns of the government and public about climate change. We think prudent action is the right thing to do. And you have to look to a company like Chevron to say, okay, so how can we contribute to this, to this issue? Um, for our part, we are spending billions of dollars to reduce our, the flares, uh, mostly in our sub-Saharan African operations and, and Fred talked about methane being one of the most potent. Flare meaning burning of excess. Burning of natural, ga- burning of natural gas that comes up with the oil that can't make its way to a market because there really are no, no domestic markets that are that mature in the, in the, the Africa area um, where we produce it. So we're spending billions to um, either re-inject, convert that gas to diesel, or get it into LNG and ship it to foreign markets. We are a participant in two of the largest uh, carbon sequestration projects being developed in uh, in the industry today, one with our Gorgon LNG project in Australia and one in uh, an oil sands operation with Shell. So we're the largest looking at the sequestration arena. As Fred mentioned, we have a company dedicated to energy services um, and energy efficiency and renewables installation. We're doing demonstration projects with solar to steam right here in San Joaquin Valley. In California, we have researched over 100 feedstocks and 50 conversion technologies trying to crack the code on cellulosic biofuel. Um, So just to name a few, and we are one of the largest producers of renewable energy, particularly for an international oil company, by the virtue of our geothermal operations in the Asia-Pacific region. And so when you, you think, how can we contribute to the issue, I think you look at how are we finding the engineering solutions that can be done cost-effectively at scale? And I would say at the last 
10 years, Chevron has looked at everything from renewables technology to sequestration technology to spending billions to put out flares to try to get our arms around what can be done, what can be scaled, what can, what can compete in the market, and that's where you should look for our contribution. And when you look to the future, do you have a shadow price on carbon? Some oil companies have $35 mm-hmm. a price. Yes. Phillips, I think, is $35. Do you sort of plan in a price on carbon when you look to the a- future? Absolutely. We look at the markets around the world, that are, and we operate in a number of areas today that are already operating under carbon markets, the European Union being one, Australia being another, parts mm-hmm. of Canada being another. So what we do for our pro- all of our capital projects kind of in- include the cost of carbon in them, depending on the jurisdiction. So, yes, we do account for uh, our estimates of how carbon markets will evolve looking at our capital expenditures. And a report came out recently that the average among industrialized con- economies is about $70 per, I think it's per ton of carbon. The U.S. price is about 7 This was from the OECD and the New York Times of last week. So the question is, Greg Krupp, is the price on carbon high enough in the United States compared to other developed economies? I think Mexico was the only company, a country that had a lower price on carbon than the United States. Well, um, no. No? Uh, We we need to uh, put a price on carbon and greenhouse gas pollution. We need to um, put caps in place so that we are effectively reducing emissions. Uh, The Environmental Defense Fund, you know, is open-minded about what policies will work, caps, cap-and-trade, tax, whatever. The test is, does it get emissions down? Um, And there's got to be urgency. Um, You quote uh, Fatih Barol, talking about the potential temperature rise if we continue on the high emission scenario. Unfortunately, we've been on the high emission scenario for, you know, the last two decades. Um, but um, we are now seeing the sort of extreme weather events that are waking people up. Tragically, in the United States, 11 events in 2012 with uh, effects of uh, over a billion dollars. I was affected in my home by Sandy, um, not nearly in the way that many people were who lost their homes or had severe damage. I was just out of power for eight days. But your office is uh, in the 20s in lower Manhattan. My office was out of power. No one was allowed into the building um, for a week. Uh, but, you know, we got off easy compared to the real victims. Um, but, you know... Maybe because of that, in part, we're emerging from two years of climate silence in the United States where no one would talk about this. We have the president of the United States in his inaugural address saying it very well. If we fail to address climate change, we will betray our children um, and future generations. And beyond that, um, in Davos a couple of weeks ago, we had... Uh, the head of the International Monetary Fund, Christine Lagarde, say, um, if we don't solve climate change, future generations will be roasted, toasted, grilled, and fried. You know, if I said that, I don't think it would even be uh, but you don't have picked French, up in the press. The French accent that she has with the panache. Come on. Let's... She sits at the center of our international financial community. That's her assessment she hadn't talked about climate change for um, a while before that. Um, but not only, it was not only her, it was Dr. Jim Kim, uh, the president of the World Bank, who, when asked to address the Davos crowd, spent seven of his ten minutes talking about the fact that the most impoverishing force 
on the face of the planet right now is climate change and extreme weather. And the World Bank, whose mission is to prevent and ameliorate poverty, has got to get more involved. So when you, when you have the head of the IMF, the president of the World Bank, the president of the United States talking this way, I think there is hope. But we need more than hope. We need action. Um, and while talk is just talk, um, you know, silence has been very expensive up until now. And through leadership and talk, the president's got the opportunity now to connect the dots for the American public so that we can get back to a time where it's possible to envision Congress taking the action that this country desperately needs to take. I can't envision that happening in the next year or maybe even the next two years, Congress acting. But I can imagine the president leading a conversation that prepares the country and Congress to act. Rhonda, your response? Well, uh, Fred has mentioned that the climate change is an extraordinary challenge, and it is. Reducing greenhouse gas emissions uh, in the world and finding engineering solutions or policy solutions to that has been a challenge to many nations. I mean, there, there's a number of reasons why we don't have a global framework in place, and this, this is a, a dilemma, particularly for the de- developing nations of the world. How do they balance economic growth? energy security, and addressing emissions. And it is, it is an extraordinary kind of physical physical challenge. When we look at climate change from that perspective, and we operate in 30 countries around the world with governments that take different points of view on this, um, we understand it, stand it very well and what they're trying to balance in managing their, their nation's well-being. And we see really three things for climate change. Uh, it's you know, very, very difficult you know, Fred said, you know, not enough price on carbon, and, and I kind of agree because actually there's only two or three places in the world that have a price on carbon, and I think the European Union is about 60 euros a ton now. And so would it help to have a higher price in the United States? And that would apply well, to I all think the what, what I was going to get at is it's a very difficult thing to do because of a price on carbon means a price on energy means a price on the economy, and I think that's the dilemma that most nations have, particularly the emerging economies. So when you look at this situation, there's, there's a couple of things to, to think of. Um, the energy system in the world, which is 80% carbon-based, is massive. We move the equivalent of 250, 60 million barrels of oil around the world today to power the world whether it's electricity, transport, and so on and so forth. It's a massive system. It's it's hard to imagine the scale this is. And when you look at taking carbon out of the system, it's going to take massive investment. You need to look at solutions at scale. Uh, Let's take solar. Solar is 1% of the world's power today. If we multiplied it 700% by 2035, it's still going to be 1% of the world's power today. It's starting from such a small base. And so I'm not sure that the energies like wind and solar can scale up in time in the time frames that we're talking about over the next 20 years. So when you look at solutions at scale, you, you, we come down to three levers that are possible. If we can get, understand the emissions, the potential of natural gas is there, and we really have to explore the potential of that in addressing greenhouse gas emissions or giving us lower-cost solutions. Energy efficiency is a very much understated opportunity we have I mean, our energy efficiency and transmission, kind of energy from source to kind of power to plug, 50%, 30% at best. Um, And so the waste we have in just transmission and conversion 
of energy is an extraordinary opportunity that if you can get that right, it can be scaled up in extraordinary ways. Uh, Fadia Burrell will also tell you that in the transportation sector, the most important thing we can do to address greenhouse gas and transportation is not trying to, t- to design a new fuel with cellulose or biofuel, which is very, very hard, but it's to inf- improve the fuel economy of the passenger vehicle. And in this nation, we are doing that. And we do expect um, the fuel economy of the global fleet to increase about 40% over the next 20 years. So I think uh, efficiency has not been tapped as much as it should be. And the third area is really more R&D. It is very going to be very difficult and almost not affordable to be able to scale the renewable technology we have today with the cost that it is. Uh, and the challenges it has, whether it's lithium-ion batteries, whether it's intermittency and storage of wind and solar and how much we can push into the grid. We do need new breakthroughs that can be scaled and keep energy affordable. And so when we look to the government, I think they're doing good work in energy efficiency and fuel economy. We're going to explore natural gas, and the government has a huge role to play in continuing to push R&D that can create the breakthroughs at scale that we need. On R&D, we had uh, John Hoffmeister here uh, a few weeks ago, the former president of Shell Oil, and he said, quote, if we cannot get off the internal combustion engine with all the technology available to us, shame on us. So could you see that R&D leading beyond the internal combustion engine? Well, it can, but let me just tell you, the internal combustion engine is not going to go away anytime soon. We just finished a very important study for Secretary Chu, Energy Secretary Chu, called The Future of Transportation Fuels in the U.S. It brought to it was the National Petroleum Council did the study, but it was more than the National Petroleum Council that worked on it. Over 300 um, academics, business leaders from the auto, energy, experts in the field from material science right through to energy efficiency convened and for 18 months worked on the question of what's the future of transportation in the country and uh, to Secretary Chu's question, how do I get greenhouse gas down 50% in my fleet? And so they worked on this study for 18 months. And this group, and getting back to R&D, took over 200 technologies and boiled them down and came to a consensus that there are 12 key technologies that the federal government should be funding and doing research on that will create the most breakthrough in transportation into the future. And those 12 technologies cut across different vehicle types. So there was one technology that cut across the entire fleet, and it was with light weighting. So new materials that can be put on either an internal combustion engine car or a plug-in hybrid or an electric vehicle or a natural gas vehicle. Also, efficiency improvements in energy conversion in internal combustion engines was also very important, as was breakthroughs in lithium-ion battery technology, on storage technology for um, uh, hydrogen vehicles. So every vehicle that that we're looking at for the future, we don't know which one is going to win, but we do know that we picked key technologies across that fleet and not knowing which one will emerge. We're going to go to uh, audience questions in just a minute. Uh, but first, I want to touch on, on California. Fred mentioned uh, California, and, and uh, California's done a lot, uh, perhaps more than any other state, uh, on addressing climate change and promoting new technologies as well as research and development. Uh, so I'd like to hear you talk about uh, California's system for addressing climate change. Is it moving in the right direction? It's not quite aligned with the rest of the 
country yet, so let's have Fred uh, speak a little further on California is moving in a cap-and-trade direction. The rest of the country, cap-and-trade is politically poisoned. It's probably dead. Is that going to work out for California? Can they continue to go in a different direction than the rest of the, the country? Well, Greg, I don't think cap-and-trade is happening this year or next in Washington. I think I said that earlier. But actually, uh, we have cap-and-trade in uh, – you know, a huge part of the country in the Northeast, in addition to California, uh, applied to power plants. Uh, New York's pretty big place. Uh, there's several other states, too. So, um, and by, by the way, in terms of the rest of the world, um, you have cap and trade not only in the European Union, but now in China. Uh, in the 12th five-year plan, they are putting cap and trade in uh, five um, cities and two provinces that together represent 250 million people living in cap-and-trade regimes, putting a price on carbon. Um, and depending on how it goes, we'll see what they do in the 13th five-year plan. Uh, Brazil has put a cap on carbon. And by the way, Brazil has reduced its emissions more than any other place in the world thanks to reduction in deforestation. And beyond that, you have South Korea, Australia, which is starting with a carbon tax, which becomes a cap-and-trade system, New Zealand. So, you know, this the idea of the, that a price on carbon uh, is inevitable, there is evidence around the world in some pretty populated places that it's happening, in addition to the most important place in our country where it's happening, which is right here in California. Now, right here in California, uh, I am more hopeful maybe than Rhonda about uh, technologies that are coming. Uh, you know, thanks to the low-carbon fuel standard that's being phased in uh, by, between now and um, 2020, already uh, manufacturers of just plain ethanol are changing the way they refine the fuel. So up until now, uh, many refineries of uh, ethanol have been doing it using coal um, to uh, fire their plants, uh, thanks to the California standard, they're, they're switching um, out of coal, and in, in some cases to natural gas, in some cases to um, agricultural waste. Um, so um, this is, um, you know, already we are seeing changes in the fuel. I agree with Ron, Rhonda. We absolutely have to get cars to be as efficient as possible. But um, I guess I part ways uh, thinking that no progress is possible on the liquid fuels. People are earning credits against this system uh, now, and um, also electric vehicles um, will be brought in. California is maybe the center of the whole world on the development of new electric vehicle technology. I do think it's good to have uh, to hear Rhonda calling for government R&D. I join that call. I, th I think we need the government investing in basic research, but there ain't nothing like the profit motive to get an entrepreneur's juices g going. And uh, we need to ha have that price on carbon, and California's system is, you know, creating a system where there's a tremendous amount of clean tech investment going on. And I'm not going to bet against entrepreneurs um, inventing new ways to take carbon out of the system. Last point. Rhonda mentioned um, natural gas, and we have to get the emissions down. I agree. Uh, EDF, having done the analysis, sees natural gas as better than the, al 
alternatives under lots of scenarios. If we can get the total amount of natural gas that we pull out of the ground, we can get the fugitive emissions from all parts of the natural gas infrastructure down below 1%. That's what the math shows. And and we look forward to, um, you know, industry and governments adopting that as a common uh, platform in the year ahead. If you're just joining us, our guests today at Climate One are Fred Krupp, President of Environmental Defense Fund, and Rada Zygaki, Executive Vice President of Policy and Planning at Chevron. Uh, we're going to go to audience questions, but first, Rhonda, uh, on those couple of points, uh, California's cap-and-trade system and the low-carbon fuel standard, which calls for a 10% reduction, is that something that Chevron supports in California? Well, I'm, I'm going to – this is probably where – we've agreed on so much tonight, Fred. It's just remarkable. But here's we, – we might just part uh, uh, part philosophy. When the AB32 was passed into law, Fred is right, six years it's taken to do the rulemaking, complicated law. It's California's main climate law. Correct. Yes, thank you, AB32. Yes, Sunnyville AB32. Um, we committed to the state that we're going to help you make this work. We brought our top scientists, fuels experts, uh, refiners. Uh, we worked with CARB, rolled up our sleeves. How can we make this low-carbon fuel standard work? It was at a time when we had great promise for cellulosic biofuel fuel that would be available in the market, you know, six years out. And we've reached this point, and it is not available. And here we are going into a compliance period. Like I've mentioned earlier, we've looked at 100 feedstocks, 50 conversion technologies, work to shape this law the best we can, and we have not come up with a solution to be able to comply with this. In the near term, the best we can do that can achieve compliance is actually with uh, Brazilian sugarcane ethanol. So what we'll have to do as um, fuel suppliers in the state is bring in $50 billion of um, sugarcane, which is ethanol from Brazil, to comply with the low-carbon fuel standard. That's pretty much about everything they produce down there, so we're probably going to have to ship Midwestern corn ethanol back um, into Brazil. So we've created a law that in its timing of implementation and its design, we believe is not workable, and we believe CARB does need to go back. That's the air regulator in California. The Air Resources Board to go back and take a look at this. We have tried for years to really help California meet this objective, and it's really, really tough. Um, And we believe the consumers of California who um, will probably be paying for this Brazilian ethanol um, really don't understand the cost on the gallon for the small benefit we're going to get. So uh, we have concerns, um, you know, working with CARB to try to sort them out, but maybe a difference of opinion on the the, um, breakthroughs we've been able to have over the last six years to get ready for compliance with this law. And on cap-and-trade, quickly, we're going to go to audience, but there's some litigation on the main cap-and-trade program. Where are you on that, aside from the low-carbon fuel standard, the, the cap-and-trade program that's starting Oh, I, I think you might be referring to – I don't know for sure, but you could be referring to the um, kind of the challenge of auctioning permits uh-huh. in the cap-and-trade. Is that – Perhaps I'm not sure. Yeah, there's some people <laughs> fighting all different ways. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, so. Well, on, on that one in particular, I think the, the position of industry is that you don't need to auction the um, permits to achieve compliance, and it just adds cost um, to be the program. Okay. Correct. Let's, uh, welcome to Climate One. Uh, yes, let's have our first audience question. Sure. My name is Michael Pierce. Mr. Zagaki, thank you for coming this evening. Um, I believe there's one thing that you and other executives of companies in frac- involved in fracking can do to make 
um, members of the public believe more about your claims about safety. If you and personally and the executives of of all the 2,000 companies involved in fracking in the American Petroleum Council all committed to have yourself and your families, your kids and grandchildren, spend at least a month uh, living next to an open pit fracking uh, uh, lake uh, each year, um, then people might believe your claim. So would you personally uh, commit to living next to an open pit fracking pond for one month a year and maybe have your executives of Chevron do that as well? Well, I thank you for your question. I can tell you that I grew up in the oil patch. I started as an engineer drilling, drilling wells. I spent many a day and months in the field um, working in these operations. Uh, I want to mention that we welcome your participation with one one-part question, uh, and if you need help keeping it simple and brief, I'm here to help you with that. Uh, and we have 14 minutes left. We're going to try to get through as many questions and as many answers as possible, so let's move this along. Yes, sir, welcome to Climate One. Hi, my name is Peter Giselle, and this is directed to Fred and the EDF. I was wondering if you could have a internal but transparent debate over leveraging the Selective Service Program into a debate on national policy for male registered youth between 18 and 19. This is something I've been interested in for 30 years, shared it with Rhonda a year ago, got a very nice letter from Thank you. I think James, James Davis, president of the Chevron Energy Solutions, saying they have a different approach. And I would wonder if EDF would be willing to embrace a debate over this. I look forward to seeing your proposal. Let's have our next question. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Fred Krupp from Environmental Defense and Rhonda Zaikaki from Chevron. Hi. Good evening. I'm Dave Masson with Citizens Climate Lobby. We're proposing a steadily rising fee on the carbon content of fossil fuel with all money collected returned to citizens. We are running out of time to start bringing down emissions, and we would like to see this passed in Congress this year. It's capable of bipartisan support. Will your organizations both support us in this legislation? Fred Krupp? I think that's, uh, you know, very interesting idea. Uh, carbon tax, cap and trade, cap and dividend. We've got to look at all these things. Um, I would like to think what you said is true, that it can pass in Congress this year. I haven't heard a single Republican uh, member of Congress so far embrace anything like what you've proposed. Lots of Republicans outside of Congress embrace this. Outside, but n- not in Congress. So I, I hope you can um, inspire them. And, and uh, if, uh, you know, we definitely want to get carbon down using whatever policy instrument. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Hi, Gary, Malaysian. Has anybody on stage seen the documentary Switch? Heard about it? No. I had the good fortune of seeing it last Wednesday night at SPUR, San Francisco Planning and Urban Research Association. I suggest you have a look at it. It uh, brings everything you're talking about uh, to scale. And all the, 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 if you put all the sustainable energy paradigms together, they are growing. Oil and coal are diminishing. That line will cross in 2064. By then, the planet will have cooked. The best way is for the American people to realize that their paradigm for living has to change. 
How do you suggest we get that message across? Fred Krupp, some people view uh, uh, sort of addressing climate change as a war on their lifestyle. Is that, you know, it, it involves sacrifice or change in consumption patterns, et cetera. I think there's enormous, uh, enormous reductions of emissions that we can get um, doing things uh, the way we do now in large measure, but there are going to have to be substantial changes. We are seeing radical changes. Just last month, miles per gallon in passenger, new passenger cars uh, being sold in the United States went up from December to January by uh, just about half, half a gallon, um, half a mile per gallon. That's a pretty significant change, uh, thanks to the president's leadership and a bunch of companies coming together in the auto industry at the beginning of his first term. Now we need, you know, to see uh, more of that. You know, one thing in terms of the grid and renewables and intermittency that I also want to point out, Greg, is that this intermittency thing, um, our grid now that operates the way Thomas Edison, you know, put it in place. And that means you have to have voltage that's being used equal to what's being produced. And so what's being used goes up and down, and then we hurry up to get the power plants to go up and down. Aha! It turns out now through technologies that are common in the Internet, we not only can have power plant um, supply go up and down, but we can help influence demand to go up and down. Buildings can uh, create ice at night to cool during the day. They can shave peak loads when the grid needs it. My refrigerator can be told defrost at 3 a.m. instead of 3 p.m., you can get home from work and the car doesn't need to charge an electric car at 5 p.m. It can charge at 2 a.m. We need to have a much much more investment in the grid to be able to integrate a lot more renewables. And thankfully, California is leading the way on that, given your PUC here. I mean, if I could just add, because I couldn't agree more in terms of the – it gets into the energy efficiency and, and conservation aspect of where – these are opportunities at scale. I mean, I think 50 to 1, if we turn off a light switch, it, it saves 50, 50 times that up the chain. And therefore, a conversation in America about um, the value of energy efficiency, what we can do with, I think, not even changing our lifestyle, but just understanding the waste we don't even know we have in our daily lives and how technology will continue to help us manage that in the future, I think, is a wonderful opportunity. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Since I live here in San Francisco, I feel like, uh, yes, we have uh, our political leaders who, and representatives who are, you know, doing their best to um, work on these issues. And so I feel helpless to help the rest of the country politically. Or is there something people in a place like this can do on that? Jim. Fred Krupp, what can individuals do? You know, uh, I think California is modeling for not only the nation, but the world. The whole world right now is watching AB 32, uh, including the low carbon fuel standard that Rhonda and I disagree about. But I think we, c we can make that work. Uh, I, by the way, Rhonda, I don't think it's realistic that Brazil is going to be exporting ethanol. The economic scenarios uh, that I've looked at don't show, uh, you know, any, any scenario where that happens. Uh, CARB predicts um, that a very low uh, cost of the low carbon fuel standard. So, you know, making AB 32 work, making the California Global Warming Act work, 
all working cooperatively. I think right now, if you live in California, you will be uh, creating um, a shining city on the hill, to paraphrase what someone else said. Let's have our next audience question for Fred Krupp and Rhonda Zygaki. Hi there. Um, my name is Dominic. I'm a graduate student in energy engineering at UC Berkeley. And I've studied hydraulic fracturing. I wanted to get both of your opinions on its relationship between renewables and energy efficiency. You mentioned this is the main point in kind of the sustainable management of fracking. And I'd uh, like to get your opinion on whether there is a trade-off, if it's one or the other, if, if they can both can go in uh, concert with each other, or if there's kind of a, a decision we have to make between both of them. I'd be curious to know whether Chevron's investments in renewables how they compare with that with hydraulic fracture if they've decreased since the acquiring of Atlas Energy and other things like that, and if they can both increase at the same time. So fracking and renewables. Okay. So the question was, how do you compare the two? I'm just or is there a trade-off? I mean, is, is it oh. or is it and? No, Some people no, think that they complement each other. No, it's an and. We need all the energy um, that the world can develop economically and commercially. Um, we need it all. And so these aren't energy technologies that should be competing with each other. These are technologies that should work together to supply the world's energy. The most important thing about this is whatever technology we develop in energy, it needs to be able to compete in the marketplace for energy that people can afford um, to keep economies going. So that's, you know, there's no competition in my mind. Just one more thing, I think we'll get to Fred. Chevron Energy Solutions is part of the, oh, the, sort of yes. the, the clean energy part of Chevron, right. but it doesn't get a lot of capital, right? Right. Oh, yes, you asked the question of how much we spend. We spend um, about $2 billion in renewables um, over a three-year period, and that's kind of um, – and that covers everything from our biofuels to our geothermal to our energy efficiency solutions and services. So uh, – Fred Krupp, and then we'll get – Fred? Well, you know um, – Natural gas, the boon we have, um, can be either a good thing to help integrate renewables into the system and help offset some of the intermittency issues that are going to be there even after we create a smart grid, or uh, we can have a glut of natural gas um, that can uh, be created in a way that leaves um, the environment and the people who live around it harmed. So we've got to do it right. But one thing's for sure is... It's part of the reality of living in this country right now. We are doing a lot of fracking. Ninety percent of all the new wells are fracked. We can't just pretend that we can wish it away because pretending we're going to wish it away leaves people living next to it that aren't protected by strong rules. We have to roll up our sleeves and do the hard work to get the rules that protect the people that are going to live uh, next to these sites and make sure we get the climate benefits and make sure that natural gas is integrated in a way that doesn't displace the increased capacity we need in clean energy. Let's have our next audience question for Fred Krupp and Rhonda Zayaki. Hi, yes, Marissa Soretsky from Ernst & Young. Um, my question is regarding energy efficiency. You were mentioning that that is a main, uh, a main uh, topic for Chevron. And I guess my question is around uh, not how much Chevron is investing in energy efficiency, but also uh, the information they disclose on its own energy efficiency and reporting on CO2 emissions and energy consumption from year to year. And I was wondering, I know that you do publish this kind of information, but at this time it doesn't seem that there are quantitative objectives um, outlining, uh, I guess, main goals 
uh, by 2020, 2030 in terms of energy consumption and CO2 emissions. And I was wondering to have, you know, if you could give me your perspective on that, knowing that a lot of uh, international uh, oil and gas companies are doing so. Thank you. We uh, maintain, we've been working energy efficiency in our operations for the last 17 years and since 1992 we've uh, reduced our energy kind of intensity in our business is about 30 percent. And so that's saving the, obviously, a lot of emissions and billions of dollars in operating costs. And so it's been a very economic proposition for the company. In terms of our goals in the future, I mentioned uh, earlier in the discussion about that we're spending billions of dollars to put out flares in our operations, international operations. That is probably one of the most substantial things that we can do uh, in part of in, in our part in our operations with respect to greenhouse gas. And we have a long-term kind of decadal plan to do that. We've already taken down those emissions 43%, and in our biggest operations are going to get down another, get to 68% reduction in the next few years. I mean, these projects to bring down that amount of flaring are multiple billions of dollars in decade-long projects um, in their own right. And so they are energy developments uh, in their own standing. And so those would be the most significant goals we have um, to eliminate flaring and venting um, in those massive operations. Uh, along those lines, our operating standard for anything new build is to minimize flaring and venting um, everywhere we do this. So it be- it's become an operating standard in the company. No, energy efficiency, Greg, is just such an enormous opportunity for people to get payback. Doug Shorenstein of Shorenstein Realty, based here in San Francisco, told me the other day, you know, he's investing in relighting, relamping some parking lots that has a six-month payback. Um, you imagine the return on that. But even if with a lower price of electricity now because of natural gas, even if it's a five-year payback, Doug said to me, you know, five-year payback, that's 20% a year. And the last time I looked at my bank account, I wasn't getting 20% a year interest, 20% uh, annual interest rate. So, you know, this is an opportunity for the president to lead, ask people to do what's in their own self-interest, invest in things that have a payback of five years or less. And this is an area that I think we should be able to get great bipartisan cooperation to even heighten the incentives because it makes America leaner and stronger and more competitive while reducing carbon pollution. And Fred Fred is right. Of all the options we have to address this, energy efficiency is the most cost-effective with the shortest payout of all the options, and I think, uh, and easier to get to scale once you get these solutions. What have you done in your homes on energy efficiency, each of you? I have uh, put uh, insulation uh, in the, uh, the roof, like 12 or 14 inches, in the basement. Uh, which turns out to be the best investment of all. Um, I have uh, put uh, new windows uh, in the house to reduce energy. My uh, bill, oil bill in this case, has, uh, you know, plummeted. Uh, oh, well, big thing probably is solar heating for our, our backyard swimming pool, which is I mean, a great saver. And um, I think the programmable thermostat, so we can program them that it comes on automatic and keeps the heat down when we're not there, air con down when we're not there. So all the gadgets that PG&E can provide. Well, uh, so our, uh, last question. We'll wrap this up quickly. Yes, sir. Rhonda, you mentioned uh, test wells around your fracking sites. Yes. Let's just say that from some of those test wells, you learn that there are toxics going into the water table. 
at that point, what can you do? Can, can you remove the toxins from the water table? Is there anything you can do at the fracking site to undo the damage you see that has been done? Yeah, well, first of all, um, first thing is prevention, and we put in multiple safeguards to prevent that from even happening. So that's that's first thing. But if we ever had information to suggest that we had any kind of um, damage to groundwater, first of all, we would try to identify the source. Is it coming from um, our well? Is it coming from a surface spill? Where did it come from? We can isolate that. Um, first of all, we would make sure that nobody is um, exposed to that water if, it, if it's not up to a, a health standard for sure. We would then probably drill some monitoring wells around that to try to delineate the extent of the contamination and see how we could remediate it. Our thanks. We'll have to end it there. We've been listening to a conversation about powering America's future with Fred Krupp, president of the Environmental Defense Fund, and Rhonda Zygaki, executive vice president at Chevron. I'm Greg Dalton. You can listen to podcasts of this and other Climate One programs in the iTunes store, and also follow our Twitter handle at Climate One and see photos of this event on Facebook. Thanks for coming to Climate One today. Thank you.